from vaccines to seatbelts and car seats to the perils of smoking. The modern world, 2013, is characterized by beliefs and behaviors that not so long ago, almost everybody would have thought ridiculous, right? Now, now for most of us today, we, we, we can't even imagine not using vaccines to prevent diseases that used to kill our children. But, but, but there was a day when everybody was convinced that that's exactly what would happen if we used vaccines. We would just kill our children. It, I, I can remember long car trips in my family station wagon, which were fun because we could bounce around in the back and build forts and do all sorts of things. But we don't do that anymore, do we? We wear seatbelts. We use car seats because crashes happen. And of course, while many people still smoke, not even smokers anymore believe that it's good for them. But of course, that's why a lot of people started smoking when it was first introduced. It was a healthy activity. Now, it is that experience of progress, I think, that that leads most of us to just assume in the modern world that eventually the truth will win out. People will see the error of their ways and, and they'll change. We've experienced it again and again and again in our own lives. And yet from from one perspective, I think... The, the, the history of the world has actually not been the history of, of, of progress, of, of truth, obviously, and of course, gradually winning out. No, no, the history of the world has been the persistence of wrong thinking and the difficulty of changing that thinking. That's why Marxism and, and the liberation theology that developed from it argued for revolutionary action. Otherwise, nothing would change. It's why advance and change in science and in technology and even in culture tends not to be incremental, but revolutionary. Thomas Kuhn made this point, I think, definitively about 20 years ago in the structure of scientific revolutions, in which he just pointed out, Scientific revolutions are always just that. They are revolutions. And there is a reason they have to be revolutionary. There's a reason change doesn't happen incrementally. It's because for change to happen, entire worldviews have to be overturned. And yet, ironically, I think the one place where we moderns are convinced that change will happen incrementally rather than all at once is in ourselves. Over time, we are convinced, we, we assume that we're going to get better. Morally, we're going to improve. This winter, we're looking at the original liberation theology of the Exodus narrative. And what we see in our passage this morning is that change in the human heart is no different than change anywhere else. Unbelief, wrong ways of thinking and living about God, well, well, that's, that's not only persistent, it's ingrained. If any of us are going to change our beliefs about God, our, our, our belief about our relationship to him, he will have to change us 
first. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. It's found on page 99, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. Exodus chapter 9. I'm going to read all of chapters 9 and 10. Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All different kinds of the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on men and animals, and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, 
I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? Moses answered, we will go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that the locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on the tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. 
Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. All the themes that we observed from last week continue on in plagues five through nine, which I just read for you. The distinction between Israel and Egypt is maintained again and again. We just read as Egypt is progressively ruined, Israel is spared. The mocking of the Egyptian gods goes on. It continues. So, for example, the plague on the livestock takes aim directly at Hathor or Hathor, the the bull-headed mother goddess of Egypt. The plague of locusts seems specifically designed to mock the god of Senehem, who was supposed to protect Egypt from precisely such plagues. And, of course, the darkness was a direct humiliation of the great god Amon-Re, the chief deity of Egypt, the god of the sun. God makes it known that he alone is God in Egypt. And of course, the purpose of the plagues remains unchanged. As God says there in in chapter 9, verse 16, this is all happening so that God might display his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So really, from, from those first four plagues, which, which I preached on last week, which we studied together, nothing has changed. So I could just go ahead and preach the same sermon all over again that I did last week. But instead of doing that, I, I want us to look at something that we really didn't talk about last week as we move into plagues five to nine. I want us to consider... Pharaoh's persistent unbelief in opposition to God. For if on the one hand, the plagues are all about the hand of God, the power of God in judgment, which we looked at last week. On the other hand, the plagues are also all about the heart of Pharaoh and his unbelief. So here's what we're going to do this week. We're going to not read through it again sequentially. We're going to be all over uh, the plague narrative. And we're going to consider three things as we look at Pharaoh's unbelief. We're going to first consider the progress of unbelief, the the progress of unbelief. Second, we're going to consider the assumption of unbelief, the assumption of unbelief. Finally, we're going to consider the end of unbelief, the end of unbelief. So if you're if you're taking notes, that's that's the outline, the progress, the assumption the end of unbelief. So well, let's start with the progress of unbelief. While, while Pharaoh's unbelief is present from the very beginning, the narrative goes out of its way to, I think, make it quite clear it's not static. It's present from the beginning, but it's not static. Rather, in response to God's word and the plagues themselves, 
what we see is a progressive hardening of Pharaoh's heart. As if, as if the arm that is initially held up against God gets increasingly stiffer and stiffer and stiffer. It begins all the way back in chapter 5, verse 2. When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's the voice of skepticism, the, vo- the voice of, of doubt. Who, who is this guy? And, and that, that skepticism is actually confirmed when, as the plague narratives open, the magicians are at first able to duplicate Moses' miracles. So, so look at chapter 7. Go back to chapter 7, verse 22. But the, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. You know, there's really no difference, I think, between the, the skepticism of Pharaoh and, and the skepticism of our own day. God makes promises. God, for example, promises that those who put their their trust in Christ will have an abundant life. I mean, it's, it's it's a great promise. But you know, science makes the same promise. Therapy makes really the same promise. Wealth makes the same promise. I think we, I think we need to recognize this. We need to recognize the reality of this. Uh, everybody's kind of making the same promise. And at, at first, it appears that everybody's coming through on them. Wealth does seem to offer a really good life. Science really does seem to offer all sorts of answers. You know, and so the skeptic comes to this and, and says, yeah, I mean, it's a great promise, but why should I give more credence to Christianity than I do to these other things? Now, we want to take that skepticism seriously. And I think for us as believers who want people to believe this message, one of the things that we have got to understand is that as good as the promised benefits are that God offers, the benefits themselves are not sufficient to overcome unbelief. The benefits themselves are not sufficient to overcome unbelief. There are just too many alternatives, and too many of those alternatives really do appear to be coming through, at least with initial answers to the promise of, hey, you can have a great life if you just do, you know, fill in the blank. Now, we know that in the end, all of those alternatives will prove false. But that doesn't change the fundamental doubt That unbelief holds towards God. It really doesn't change that. We need to take that on board. As we think about our evangelism. We need to take that on board. As we think about how we engage people around us. Who are skeptical. Towards the Christian faith. Now we also need to take it on board with ourselves I think. I think as as Christians. We are also in danger. of, Of skepticism of kind of doubt towards God and his word. But it works a little differently. I think for for many of us, we have no doubt that God is in control. We just wonder if he's in control of my life. 
We have no doubt that God in his character is loving. It's just I'm not so sure he's loving toward me. We have no doubt that God keeps his promises for other people. But in the midst of our own lives, in the midst of the struggles of our own lives, we begin to wonder, but but is it true for me? Doubt is real. Doubt is real in the Christian life. And it's the beginning of unbelief. Now, skepticism, doubt about God's word, is not a stable place for anyone about anything. You can't just remain a perpetual skeptic. Very quickly, Pharaoh moves to an outright unwillingness to listen. An unwillingness to listen to Moses. In verse 22, as I just read, he turns his back and he just walks away. After the second plague in chapter 8, verse 15, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron. After the third plague, He won't even listen to to the counsel of his own magicians. There in verse 19 of chapter 8, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen now to, to them, just as the Lord had said. By the time we get to the seventh plague, the plague of hail, he's not even listening to his own officials and advisors. Right. So chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? And Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. Wait a minute, but just who will be going? And right there we see him rejecting the counsel of his own counselors. Now what's interesting is that even though he's not really listening, he can't ignore the plagues, can he? The plagues keep getting his attention. I don't want to listen to Moses, but I can't help but listen to what's going on around me. And and so repeatedly, he wants to give the impression that he is listening. So so as as I just read there, he calls Moses and Aaron back there in verse 8. He says, okay, I've heard the the message. I've gotten the message. I've been listening. You can go. But as the following verses make clear, it's not an honest listening. It's not an honest submission to God's word. Back in chapter 8, verse 29, Moses describes it as deceitful. Giving the impression that he's going to obey God. While all along intending just the opposite. You know, at a certain point, unbelief isn't really listening anymore. If it ever was. But that doesn't mean it wants to give up the fig leaf of appearing open-minded. It it doesn't want to appear intransigent, even though it really is. And so what does it do? It, it It begins to go through the motions. It begins to try to give the impression that I'm listening, the impression that I'm paying attention, the impression that I'm taking this on board. And I think nowhere is that more the case, more that nowhere is that more likely than right here in our own midst. Right in, in, in good Christian families who value belief. Going through the motions is a deceit. And it will eventually show itself. 
Hypocrisy cannot hide forever behind the polite lies of church attendance, the polite deceit of bowing our head for prayers at meals. I think this is something that, I mean, if you're here this morning, a, a, a child or a youth growing up in, in one of the, the families of this congregation, you need to take this on board. Since you can't deceive God, and you can't, you want to be really careful that you're not deceiving yourself. Compliantly coming to church doesn't make you a believer. Knowing Bible verses and being able to recite them doesn't mean you believe them. I mean, I, I think about this really in, in, in my own life, right? I, I, I grew up in the church. I, every single Sunday that the doors were open, every single Wednesday that the doors were open, actually any day that the doors were open, I was there. And, and, and I knew all the Bible verses, and, and, and I was the good kid in Sunday school, and that didn't mean a thing about whether or not I actually knew Jesus and then put my faith and my trust in him. And if you could have seen my life the rest of the week, you would have realized that. See, what matters is whether you listen to God's word. What matters is if you willingly submit to God's word from, from the heart, not just because it's externally imposed upon you by an authority figure. Faith is a matter of the heart long before it's a matter of our outward actions. And that's not just true for kids. That's true for us adults as well. Now, as God's hand of judgment continues against him, we really see another step in this progression of unbelief, and that's shallow repentance. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 27, when the plague of hail. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Now you read that and it, and it looks like we've got genuine repentance. It, it looks like he's changed. But now skip down to verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped... He sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. This isn't the first time we've seen this response. Uh, back in, ch in chapter 8, verse 15, in the, in, the, in the plague of frogs, we see the same thing. Oh, verse 14, the, the, the frogs are, are piled into heaps. The land reeked of them, but the point is they're dead. And so verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. As the plagues continue, Pharaoh's language of, of repentance, of change, actually becomes more and more religious. Until finally, in chapter 9, he's actually confessing that he sinned. That he sinned against God, that he sinned against Moses, that he sinned against Israel. But it's not true repentance. It, it's, it's what I think Paul calls worldly sorrow. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where, where the Apostle Paul tries to show the difference between 
True repentance and false repentance. Worldly sorrow, that's a false repentance, and godly sorrow, a true repentance. This worldly sorrow is, is really, it's, it's a sorrow. I mean, it's a genuine sorrow, but it's a sorrow over the consequences of sin and a desire to escape them. It's not a sorrow over the sin itself. It's not a hatred of the sin itself because it is sin. The reality is nobody likes painful consequences. I don't like painful consequences. I don't think you like painful consequences. But if our repentance is merely motivated by a desire to escape the consequence, rather than a hatred of sin itself, then honestly we are still looking at unbelief. It might be a really religious unbelief, but it is still unbelief. Belief is not just worried about the consequences. Belief is worried about the problem itself. Belief takes God's side against itself. Belief accepts the judgment of God as the judgment it actually deserves. And it doesn't try to wriggle out of it. It, it owns it. Again, I can, I can think about this in, in my own life. I, re, I remember uh, in, in college when the Lord was first beginning to get a hold of me and bringing me under real conviction of sin. But, but at first, it wasn't conviction of sin. It was conviction of sin's consequences. I had gotten, my, I'd gotten myself into trouble. You know, I, I'd made a hash of things. And I can, I can vividly remember sitting on my bed one day, j- just in tears, praying to God, saying, saying, God, if you just won't send me to hell, I'll stop drinking. God, if you just won't send me to hell, I'll stop messing around with my girlfriend. God, if you just won't send me to hell, I'll go to church more. I'm I'm quoting myself. I, I will not forget those prayers. They are burned into my memory. And God didn't answer them. Because those aren't prayers of faith. Friend, if your your profession of faith in Christ is just to avoid hell, rather than a desire positively to be with Christ and to align yourself with him, then you need to consider whether or not you believe at all. In the end, Pharaoh's unbelief, having so long persisted, becomes obstinate becomes obstinate. He truly hardens his own heart against God. I think we see that most clearly when Pharaoh sends officials out to investigate what happened to the Israelite animals, right? To see if any of them died. Look in, look in chapter nine, uh, verse five there. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All kinds of livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. In the face of incontrovertible evidence of the supernatural hand of God, Pharaoh digs in his heels. Moses will will characterize this later in in chapter 9, verse 30, as having no fear of the Lord God. Despite the suffering, 
despite the evidence, despite the appeal of his own officials, he has hardened himself obstinately against the Lord. The, the cement has finally set. Now, now the text actually uses a number of different words to describe this. It, it comes out in, in our English translations again and again as, as hardening or as hard as hard. But actually the Hebrew uses a bunch of different words. It describes his heart as, as heavy and in, impenetrable. It describes his heart as, as self-willed, as stubborn. It, it describes it as a recalcitrant heart. Therefore, altogether, a hard heart. That not even nine mighty acts, nine miraculous signs are able to overcome. So if you're here this morning and and you're not a believer, if you're here this morning and and you understand yourself to to be a skeptic towards Christianity, a skeptic towards the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, I I want you to take this to heart. But what this narrative is teaching us, we live in a moral universe. And our choices matter. Not just the choices of what we do, but the choices of what we do with our minds. The choices of what we actually believe. To consistently choose to turn your back on God. To to consistently choose over time to harden your heart. To close your ears. Is to actually shape your own character. It is to have an impact on your character. It is to gradually render yourself unable to hear. Unable to respond. Even to reason. Like we saw there Pharaoh responding to his own officials. There is a point of no return in unbelief. We, we like to think that as human beings, you know, we're, we're free and, and we are free to change our minds at any time. About anything. But we know that's not true. And we know it's especially not true when it comes to knowledge of God. Knowledge is moral. This is an idea that that our modern world doesn't like. Our modern world likes to think that, that knowledge is amoral. But not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, knowledge is moral. Therefore, obedience to God leads to greater knowledge of God. But disobedience to God has its own trajectory. Unbelief has a trajectory that leads to greater blindness, to greater hardness of heart. And there comes a point, we don't know where it is, in our own lives, where we're unable to change our minds even if we wanted to. So set have we become in our own character. Christian. I hope that this kind of walk through the trajectory of unbelief, the progress of unbelief serves as a, as a warning to us. We who, who have put our faith in Christ, we, we need to be encouraged to continue to fight the fight of faith, to take seriously doubt and unbelief whenever and wherever we find it in ourselves, because it's not benign. Unbelief, even in the life of a Christian wants to destroy you. It, it means your destruction. Now, it never presents itself that way at first. Unbelief and doubt always presents itself in the life of the Christian as just honest intellectual inquiry. 
I, I've just got some questions. I've got some doubts. God would want me to be honest about my doubts. Yeah, sure. That, that's true. But examine yourself. Because I think we all know the difference between an honest question that is open to accepting and receiving the answer when it comes and unbelief masquerading as intellectual inquiry, but it's really not interested in the answer at all because it's really already secretly made up its mind. Christian, fight unbelief when you find it, wherever you find it in yourself. Pull people into your life. Talk to them about your questions. Come to the word of God and find answers there. But don't rest until you find those answers. Because unbelief certainly will not rest either. Now it seems incredible that Pharaoh would persist in his unbelief, despite the plagues. But I think it makes more sense that that he persists in it when we consider, second, the assumption of unbelief. The assumption of unbelief. And that assumption is that we are like God. That assumption is that we are actually God's equal. You notice that throughout the narrative, Pharaoh doesn't ever just say no. He actually tries to negotiate with God. So in in chapter 8, verse 28, if I could paraphrase, he basically says, you can go, but you can't go far. And then in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, you can go, but only the men can go, not the women and children. And then finally in chapter 10, verse 24, okay, everybody can go, but not your livestock. You got to leave the animals behind. You see what's going on there? It's as if Pharaoh thinks that the Lord God has invited Pharaoh, a fellow God, to the negotiating table. And Pharaoh, you know, he begins to figure out pretty quickly, God's going to drive a hard bargain, but he's confident, he's arrogantly confident that in the end, he'll be able to strike a deal with God. I think this is what explains the incredible anger that we see there at the end of chapter 10. He simply cannot accept the fact that God will not parley with them. God will not compromise with them and and strike a deal. And friends, here is the the fundamental assumption of unbelief. It, It is pride. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, we have wanted to be like God. We have, we have wanted to be able to, to assume that we can relate to God as peers. And, and really, ever since then, we, we've been trying to change the terms of our relationship with God. We, we've been presuming that, that we can approach him as a peer, and, and we want to we deal with him. We, we want to negotiate the terms of our belief. We want to negotiate the terms of our surrender to him as Lord. We, we say things... Kind of like I was doing in my, in my bedroom there in college all those years ago. Saying, God, I'll, I'll serve you. God, I'll serve you as long as I can, you know, pursue my sex life or my career or my money or my family or my time on my terms. You know, you can have most of the life, but, but I'm going to keep this bit for me. But as God makes abundantly clear to Pharaoh and to us, 
He's not negotiating. This is not a negotiation table that we're sitting at. He is in complete control and his purpose is to make clear to everyone that he alone is God and we are not. Go back to to what I I read uh, earlier in in chapter 9. Verse 13, the beginning of the plague of hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, confront him. It's not negotiations. Confront him and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Friends, that's not a negotiating position. Those are the words of the almighty God. Who is in absolute control. And he confronts us in our pride. He doesn't say, what do you think? He says, submit to me. Actually, the, 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 the only question he asks Pharaoh, or or really us, is the question there in chapter 10, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This has huge implications for what it means to become a Christian and to be a Christian. You'll hear sometimes Christians, as as they're talking to non-Christians, say something like this. "You You just need to invite Jesus into your heart. You, you need to receive Jesus into your heart. I, I know what they're getting at there. But that's not the way the Bible talks about it. Scripture doesn't imagine us in control. Deciding whether or not like we're going to let Jesus in or not. Scripture doesn't seat us at the negotiating table with God. And God makes his invitation and we make our counter offer. Now, Scripture comes and calls us to repent, period, and believe, period. Scripture says that we are to obey the command of the gospel, to submit to Christ and to to follow him. So, friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a believer, but but you want to be one, or or maybe you're here and, and you've You've wondered if you're a believer. You, you, you've kind of hoped you were a believer. Thought you were a believer, but, but you're not sure. Let me just say to you, stop asking Jesus into your heart. And start submitting to him as Lord and Savior and follow him as a disciple. Stop asking him into your heart. And start following him. Obey him. Submit to him as your savior. Submit to him as your Lord. This, this is, after all, what it means to be a Christian. And so I, I think we should expect becoming a Christian and being a Christian to kind of look pretty similar. Being a Christian is not all about somebody who prayed a prayer. Being a Christian is fundamentally someone whose posture is that of humility towards Jesus Christ. Humbly 
accepting him as Lord, humbly following him in obedience. Now, as we look at Pharaoh's assumption, kind of the foolishness of his pride, it's really obvious. It's really obvious from our vantage point that he's not at a negotiating table with the Lord. But as easy as it is to see Pharaoh's pride, it's equally hard, I think, to see our own. Equally hard to see our own foolishness. So, friend, how are you going to gain a sight of the folly of your own pride? Are there people around you that you've allowed into your life that can confront you with your own pride? That can, that can call you on it and, and you don't just stiff arm them when they do it. But, but you actually listen to what they say. Friend, are you spending time in scripture? You know, you know, that really is what in part scripture is for. Scripture is not always primarily there to just make us feel better about ourselves. Scripture actually, I think, primarily is there to hold up a mirror to ourselves so that we can see ourselves the way we really are. That's what we really need, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, finally, we should consider the end of unbelief, the end of unbelief. Throughout throughout these plagues, there are several pictures of the consequences of of opposing God, of of unbelief. In chapter 9, verse 11, you will have noticed it there. The, the magicians who at first stood against Moses, they, they opposed him. In, in the end, they can't even stand before him because of the boils, literally. In, in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, those who follow Pharaoh in his contempt for the Lord's word share in his judgment. While those that begin to, to hear and heed God's word are spared the consequences. But the most striking picture of the end of unbelief is, is what happens to Pharaoh himself. We've talked about his, his own hardening of himself, his, his unwillingness to listen to God. But that unwillingness does not simply render him increasingly unwilling to hear. It brings God's judgment. Who the text says again and again hardens his heart. And so God renders him unable to hear. Now, at the very beginning, back in chapter 7, God declares that he's going to do this. He declares that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But then we start reading the narrative, and it doesn't happen right away. For the first five plagues, if you get to the end of each of them, you'll see for the first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That's what we were talking about earlier, making those choices, deciding to turn his back on God. And as he makes those moral choices, he, he suffers the consequences of those choices. But after the sixth plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And from that point on, from the sixth plague all the way through to the tenth plague, there is what we would call a judicial hardening. A hardening of Pharaoh in judgment. I think we get the best picture of this in chapter at the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10. So look in chapter 9, verse 34. We've already looked at this from one perspective. Chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And the hearts of his officials. 
so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart in those verses? Well, Pharaoh did. It it tells us that he did. He hardened his own heart. Pharaoh is responsible. But who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God did. The text tells us he did. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over unbelief and belief from the very beginning. Some people will object to this. If God is sovereign over unbelief, then how can he hold us responsible? But in fact, as this narrative makes abundantly clear, God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility. If anything, it just underscores it. We choose to reject God. God doesn't make us do something that we don't want to do. When we reject God, we are doing precisely what we want to do. By the same token, when by God's grace, we believe in God. Well, we choose to believe. It's, it's, it's our faith. God's not making us do something that we don't want to do. When we put our faith in God, we want to put our faith in God. What this text is really pressing on us is that not that, that God's sovereignty removes our responsibility. Really what this text, I think, is pressing on us is that our responsibility, which is clearly ours, does not in any way constrain God's sovereignty. That's the real issue here. Our responsibility does not in any way constrain or limit God's sovereignty. The mistake of unbelief is to assume that the opportunity to repent is open-ended. We already talked about that from our perspective, thinking that we can always change our mind. But it's not the case. It's not the case from our perspective. And as this makes clear, it is not the case from God's perspective. Nowhere does God promise to hold open the opportunity to repent forever. There comes a point when the day of salvation has passed. And part of God's judgment against unbelief is to give sinners over to that unbelief, to to confirm them in it, to establish them in it. The language here is to harden their hearts. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's their responsibility. Therefore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And what a terrible thing to be left alone by God in our sin. What a terrible thing to be left alone by God in our unbelief. But make no mistake, there is no injustice in God in doing so. No one deserves grace. Grace is not a right. It's not a human right. It's not a civil right. It's a gift. It is a gift. God owes us nothing but judgment. And he does owe us judgment. 
He would cease to be God if he did not bring judgment where judgment is owed. Pharaoh reminds us of this. For all of us left to ourselves would walk the same path that Pharaoh walked. We would increasingly harden our own hearts. It is what rebels do. And to be confirmed in that hardness of heart is what rebels deserve. This is where unbelief leads. The end of unbelief. But I think there is more to understanding the end of unbelief than where it leads. Because the message of the Bible is also the good news of Christianity, that God is not willing. God is not willing to leave unbelief alone. It is his purpose in the gospel to bring unbelief to an end. And he did it through Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus Christ always listened to God. Jesus Christ always submitted to God. Jesus Christ always had a soft heart to God. Why? Because he is God. God made man. The incredible news of the gospel is that God made man always obedient, always listening, always soft toward God, went to the cross. And there on the cross took the punishment of sinners. There on the cross took the punishment for hard hearts. Though he knew no sin of his own, he voluntarily bore the sin of me and of you. If you would put your faith in him, if you would put your trust in him, he bore the sin of all who put their faith in him. And there on the cross, what did God do? God abandoned him. God abandoned him to that sin that he bore. Not his, but yours. Not his, but mine. He was abandoned to it. Left there, alone with it. And the punishment that it deserved. On the cross, God gave Christ over to sin. Your sin and mine. So that Jesus would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew the answer. The answer was that God forsook him so that God would not have to forsake us. He paid the penalty we deserved. And three days later, he got up from the dead, proving that the payment was accepted. Friends, you see, if any of us are to be saved, if any of us are to avoid the end of unbelief, which is that hardening and that judgment and the the curse that it deserves, if any of us are to be saved, the God who is sovereign over unbelief must sovereignly intervene in our lives. We have hard hearts And if they're going to change, God must break in and soften them. He must break in. We don't invite him in. He must break in. And the good news of the gospel is that's what he does. He breaks into hard hearts like ours. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God makes us alive. He he softens our hearts. He gives us ears that are willing to listen and minds that are willing to believe and hearts that are willing to submit so that when our hearts hear the word of love in the gospel spoken to us by Jesus Christ, 
we don't turn our back on those words. No, we run to them. We accept them. Because God has given us ears to hear. Because God has given us hearts that are soft to receive them. At that point, friend, we we take God's side against ourselves. And we accept rather than reject his word of judgment and his word of love. Friend, today, today is the day. Today is the day to stop closing your ears. Today is the day to stop hardening your own heart. To humble yourself. To pray that God would break in. And to receive a heart of flesh in exchange for your heart of stone. Christian. Today is the day of joy. Not because of the week we just had. I certainly know that. Today is the day of joy. Because of God's grace that has invaded our lives. In this terrible story of God's judgment against a proud heart, we are reminded that our own hearts have been humble. By his grace. Here's the source of our humility. When we were still yelling at God like Pharaoh was. That we never want to see you again. God did not listen to us. But he listened to his son. And he reached down in love and he changed us. For we. While we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. Oh, be humbled by that grace. Allow it to fill your heart today with joy and to sing glory be to God. Praise my soul that the King of heaven has become the King of love. Let's pray. Lord God, in our, in our pride, we would set ourselves up as your equal. In our pride, we would assume, even as Christians, that somehow we've come to know you because of something about ourselves. And yet, Lord, we see so clearly in the words of Scripture that left to ourselves, we are hard-hearted. But Lord, we pray. That we would be set free of that pride. That you would indeed break in. That our hearts would become soft and remain soft to you. That we might hear your words of love to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll conclude our worship this morning by standing and singing. Praise my soul.